Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthol. I'm fortunate to be joined today by Elizabeth Nolan Brown, the author of this month's cover story for Reason Magazine. Elizabeth is a senior editor at Reason and the founder of Feminists for Liberty. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and Playboy, among many other publications, and she appears regularly on television and radio. Elizabeth's cover story is called The Bipartisan Antitrust Crusade Against Big Tech, How Reactionary Politicians Are Using Monopoly Concerns as Cover to Pursue Pre-Existing Political Agendas. On Capitol Hill, at least, the so-called tech lash is going strong. So many anti-tech bills are flying around. It can be hard even to keep track of them. Elizabeth's article discusses some of those bills, and we will do so here, too. But what I especially like about her piece is how it captures, with these really piquant turns of phrase, the root fallacies, both factually and philosophically, that underlie our political party's current attitudes about technology and the market. Members of both parties, Elizabeth writes, have grown adept at slotting their desire for censorship, in the case of Republicans, and economic control, in the case of Democrats, into an antitrust framework, no matter how ill-fitting that framework might be. As Elizabeth puts it, the left's new antitrust crusaders essentially want to wield government power to reduce income inequality between businesses, no matter the consumer effects. While on the other hand, the right wants to use it as a sort of welfare for cultural cachet, subsidizing speakers and ideas that private market actors would rather not. I'm excited to discuss discuss Elizabeth's cover story along with some of her other great recent work. Elizabeth, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. So great to have you here. I'm going to quote your your article endlessly, I think, because I just <laughs> it's got so many great phrases. So first off, you know, congrats on gracing the cover of Reason this month. Thank you. Um, that's really cool. So for progressive Democrats, you write, the push for new antitrust laws isn't really about tech companies. And for populist Republicans, it's not really about monopoly power. Instead, in both cases, antitrust has become a broad cover for pursuing pre-existing political agendas. So I think we should set the table first. Uh, you know, a good place to start would be if you could briefly explain what anti- antitrust law should be before it gets um, sort of contorted in these ways. And, and what, um, what are Republicans and Democrats doing to try to drift away from that model? Yeah, so I came to writing about antitrust law actually not that long ago because uh, I was just covering, you know, tech policy more generally, especially um, the fight over Section 230 and various sort of uh, proposals related to social media content moderation and things like that. And then I started noticing that, you know, the same exact things that that Republicans and Democrats were talking about in terms of, of these other tech policies, suddenly they just sort of started switching and being like, well, we'll solve that with antitrust law. And I was like, you know, I don't know a lot about antitrust law. You know, this is, you know, a year or so ago, but like, I don't think that that's really what it's supposed to do. So 
Um, it, it is not, it turns out, uh, you know, antitrust law, I think people, you know, basically have, have some idea of it. It's, you know, about trust busting and going after, um, you know, businesses for unfair practices. There are three more main antitrust laws and the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, and the Federal Trade Commission Act. And basically they present, prevent um, unfair, unreasonable restraints of trade, monopolization through predatory acts, um, unfair methods of competition, and unfair and deceptive practices, things like that. Um, so, you know, historically, it was used to bust up sort of uh, unfair arrangements between between big businesses that sort of left, you know, only one one uh, alternative within a specific market that was, you know, abusive and predatory towards its customers. And for at least the past, you know, 40 years or so, the the main thrust of antitrust law has been about preventing consumer harm, because all of the things I mentioned, the unfair restraints of trade, the, you know, all of that, it's all sort of vague. And it's all sort of throughout throughout antitrust law's history has been up to sort of the way courts and politicians interpret it. But going back to the Chicago School of Economics and, you know, starting around the 70s, they started saying like, OK, look, we just need to consider this is such a vague body of, of work. We need to consider consumer harm as sort of the lodestar of this. So if these business practices, if these monopolies do things that harm consumers and hurt consumer welfare, then that is, you know, grounds for maybe investigating and or maybe even acting. If they don't, then it's, you know, not a problem. Basically, the big push right now in antitrust law is to get rid of that standard um, and sort of go back to or even beyond an earlier standard, which says, you know, it doesn't actually matter if it lowers prices for consumers. It doesn't matter what, about consumer welfare. All that matters is increasing competition and cutting businesses down to size. Um, some of that is, what, like I said, what you saw historically, some of that is even sort of more radical than historical interpretations of antitrust law because it's never been solely about bigness. But that's really what a lot of, especially the Democrats, are trying to make this about is, you know, big businesses are bad. We want lots of small firms competing and we should use whatever, um, you know, the hand of the government to, to make sure that that happens. Oh, great. You got the, the full history lesson in there, too. <laughs> um, and you really take a plague on both your houses approach in your piece, which I agree with, to be clear. Um, so let's break it down by party. Um, we, we pick on Republicans a lot lately on the show. Uh, so we'll start with the Democrats in a spirit of, of even handedness. Um, because they, <laughs> they all deserve it. Uh, the core of the Democrats' reform push seems to be an effort to rearrange tech companies' business models. I mean, when you talk about breaking them down to size, when you get into the nitty gritty, what it tends to mean is, is basically the government thinking it knows how to arrange the way these companies do business better than the businesses themselves. So um, could you talk about that? I mean, what are some of the specific things that Democrats are trying to do? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things is they want to break up Facebook and break up Google. And, and you know, that's what they say, which basically by which they mean making them divest of uh, various lines of business. Like Facebook wouldn't be allowed to own Instagram and what's um, WhatsApp, even though they, you know, uh, uh, the FTC approved that merger. But they would say, you know, never mind, you have to divest of them. Google wouldn't maybe be able to own uh, YouTube also. Amazon might not be able to also have Amazon Prime Video or various services. Um, they want to kind of say you have to have a core business and that's it. You cannot have any sort of ancillary businesses. 
and especially not if they compete with any other existing business that you might be competing with. So, you know, how a lot of times, you know, one of these big tech companies is in one line and then, and then, you know, Microsoft will say, okay, I'm going to jump into that too, to compete with Apple or vice versa. And they'll say, no, like you have to kind of decide what your business is and then just stick with it. Um, they also, there's a lot of proposals right now in Congress that are along those lines, you know, trying to prevent a lot of mergers and acquisitions, um, just say that any sort of a merger that's by a company that's over a certain market cap is going to presume to be predatory unless the company can prove otherwise, which pretty much means that, you know, they won't or it can prove that it won't hurt any sort of competitor, which again is just sort of silly if you ask me because you know it, i think that what antitrust laws should be doing and and what it has been doing is worrying about are these business practices going to hurt customers and you know um what they're trying to say is like is it going to hurt your competitors and that's kind of the core of business is you know like you're competing with people they're your competitors like it shouldn't be the government's job to say you can't hurt your competitors as long as you're not doing something deceptive in order to make that happen. But that's sort of where the government, um, with the Democrats have been going with this lately. Yeah, and if I may volunteer like a concrete example, because you know people hear consumer welfare standard and well, people hear it. I mean, some people often kind of misdescribe it a bit as just lower prices, Uber Alice. And um, it really, it, it encompasses the consumer experience in general. You want companies to be competing. You want them to be innovating. You want them to be aggressive about trying to enter markets and improve them. So, uh, you know, if Amazon taking over, say, Whole Foods leads not only to lower prices or, or not, but it makes delivery easier and more convenient yeah. and I can get it at my door in a day, that's innovation. That's good. That's consumer welfare. That's exactly what the antitrust laws are not supposed to be punishing. Right. Um, like that's what's so amazing about some of these current proposals is they make things a lot worse and not just in terms of prices. Like uh, some of them that say you can't, you know, prioritize your line of business would mean like maybe Amazon can't sell its own brand products, which actually are really, I'm wearing an Amazon dress right now, <laughs> Amazon brand dress. Like they're really good quality and, and inexpensive. Or it would say, you know, Google can't, when you emailed me about this podcast today and the, it emailed with the Google um, calendar link that I could automatically just add it to my calendar. Well, like that would be preferencing its own calendar or if you email me directions, you know, so you wouldn't be able to just automatically transfer that thing. If you're on Instagram, you couldn't just um, share something to be like, oh, I'll share this to Facebook at the same time because that would be self-preferencing. And these are the kinds of things they want to ban. And these are exactly the kind of things that consumers like that are useful for consumers and, um, yeah, it's just really weird because I think that a lot of this stuff wouldn't solve the problems that anyone has with, I mean, I'm not saying that any of these companies are perfect, but like none of the solutions being proposed would solve the problems that we actually have with them. They would just like get rid of the things we like about these companies. Well, and, and the question always is, because you say they're not perfect, and of course they're not, uh, the, the, but, you know, compared to what should always right. be a question, and can the government do it better? And that actually, you know, you have a, a great line in your article, quote, the idea that consumers choose to use products, not because they're useful, but because big tech companies have somehow tricked or pressured them into it, is deeply embedded in, and I got to stop here, the recent House Judiciary Committee antitrust report. It was issued last year, Democrat-led effort. Uh, this big report they wrote, um, and in the antitrust crusade more generally. It's a form of consumer false consciousness in which end users don't know what they want, but members of Congress, of course, do. Um, and I think that just captures, captures yeah. this point so well. Um, so what is behind the Democrats' 
effort. I mean, I see two things. Um, one, I mean, let's face it, just a drive for raw power. I mean, you mentioned in your article, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren's responding to an Amazon tweet. I mean, this just blew my this mind. This is great, yeah. <laughs> responded to an Amazon tweet about her tax plans by saying she would uh, fight to break up big tech so Amazon is not powerful enough to heckle senators with snotty tweets. Um, and God, you know, it's just like saying that. the quiet part loud there. <laughs> yeah, letting letting the mask slip. Um, yeah. So that's that's really one. And then the other is just this sort of technophobia and progress phobia. And, you know, I'll quote you again, uh, quote, it's a series of hostile, emotional, populist friendly proposals intended to stand athwart technological progress uh, and the disruption such progress causes using historically progressive tactics to advance historically conservative ends. Um, so, it, I mean, do I have that right? Is, is that kind of how you see what's behind the Democrats push? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's part, part politics, just it's generally good politics for Democrats to be like, big businesses are bad and they're out to get you and we need to do something. We're going to save you from, you know, predatory businesses. That's sort of throughout time, a, a democratic, you know, talking point. And this is just sort of one of the latest, you know, they know that people are mad at tech companies for a whole lot of confusing and contradictory and often not valid even reasons. And so it's like, this gives them a way to sort of address that. And then yes, also, like you said, just sort of a desire to control uh, the internet and technology and the means of, you know, speech. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's very telling that every time you see something about some new concern with Democrats with like um, disinformation or just just any sort of thing that they think, you know, a kind of speech that should not be allowed online. Uh, recently, they've been reaching for, well, maybe we could use antitrust to solve that. So, yeah, it becomes this tempting tool where you uh, if you're a politician, you can just fill it with your hopes and dreams. Yes. Um, going back to the very beginning, as you were saying that it's kind of a broad language. Well, I, I want to get back to progress phobia maybe at the end. But for the moment, let's turn now to the Republicans. Uh, we didn't forget about you, GOP. Um, you sum things up on the Republican side pretty well when you say, quote, the and I mean, very bluntly, which I approve of, quote, the conservative <laughs> case against big tech frequently seems to be divorced from any meaningful sense of how antitrust law actually works. Um, excellent. So um, <laughs> let me focus in specifically on probably my favorite line in your entire piece, that Republicans want to use antitrust, quote, as a sort of welfare for cultural cachet. And that is just exquisite. So please tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, Republicans' whole thing with big tech, whether they're talking about antitrust law or, you know, um, reforming Section 230 or, say, this law in Florida that that. Ron, I was just writing about this morning, the one that Ron DeSantis passed that says, you know, they can't deplatform politicians. And, and, and luckily, a judge just ruled against it and said it was a violation of the First Amendment. But, um, you know, all of these things, their whole goal is that they think that tech companies are too culturally liberal, that they are biased against conservatives, conservative politicians, conservative speech in general, and that they should be forced to not have those biases. Um, Obviously, the First Amendment says otherwise, because, you know, it's it's not illegal for a company to say even even, you know, so I don't think it's necessarily true that a lot of the times that there's this bias against conservatives. I think that there's 
bad decisions all around because content moderation is hard. And, you know, a lot of times conservatives uh, misinterpret that as, as only a bias against them. Whereas if they were listening to all these stories from liberals, you'll see that like they get kicked off for really dumb reasons all the time too. But, you know, obviously over the past few years with Trump and everything, I mean, there was more concern about him. So they've decided that there's bias against them and that they need to use the you know government to stop that. But even if we totally accept that premise and say like, yes, all these companies are biased against conservatives, these are private companies and they can do that. There's, you know, that is their first amendment right to be able to allow whatever sort of speech that whatever sort of legal speech that they want and disallow whatever sort of legal speech that they want. And that's, you know, not a first amendment violation because obviously a private company can't violate first amendment rights. Only the government can do that. So what's so crazy is you have them saying like, well, we're going to protect free speech by using the government to say what kind of speech can and cannot be allowed on these websites, which would be, you know, um, a First Amendment violation. And lately they've sort of settled on antitrust law as, as a way to go around that. Um, in a way that doesn't really make even any sense, because like I said, like it's not really in line with the way that we understand with what antitrust law does currently or what it is supposed to do. But you have people like Josh Hawley and, and them saying, you know, like, well, if these companies are going to be biased against conservatives, then that's unfair. It's an unfair business practice. And we'll, you know, we'll go after them with antitrust laws to sort of make them make them respect our speech, make them respect our speakers as much as we think that they respect liberal speakers in the speech. Yeah, one of the things that has really I have found disorienting in recent years, maybe I'm just naive, is the way that uh, Republicans have taken on so many of the um, bad habits that when I was younger, I associated with Democrats. Um, reaching for sort of grievance as your, your main rhetorical framework, seeking to put private rights of actions into law so that plaintiff's lawyers can punish your, your political enemies. That was part of the Florida social media law you mentioned. Um, expecting the government to step in and solve your problems. That goes to your sort of uh, welfare for cultural cachet line. And what we really have now is a party that, um, if you think about where they are in all of the cultural heights, all of the cultural centers of power, large cities, universities, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, legacy media, um, the lower levels of government, their ideas are not winning in any of those places. So now they think, well, let's just reach for the government and raw political power and force people to act the way we want them to, uh, which I find both disheartening, disappointing and disturbing all at once. Um, but with that sort of warm up, the other thing I don't understand is it seems futile to me. Uh, the yeah. Republicans had power not that long ago. They and the cultural heights continued to slide away from them. And they seem to think that if they just double down, I mean, I was in a debate um, with a with a sort of nationalist conservative type um, and he, he started one of his answers with, well, when we get power back in 2024, like that was his solution. I'm like, do you, do you see how you've been wiped out in all of these cultural centers and that's your solution? It's just more political power. Um, so when I see these laws, you know, I, I, I have, I guess, a philosophical question for you. And I don't know your, your exact you know, political makeup, but like the Republicans have historically been um, seen, at least maybe by their friends, as the party preserving liberalism, like in the classical sense. Yeah. Um, 
do you still have hopes for them of doing that? Do you, would you still hope that they can be convinced to be that party? Or do you kind of see them as these now irredeemable populists and people like you and me need to chart a new path and sort of give up on that party? I mean, I've just suddenly uh, ambushed you with a very deep question. But what are your <laughs> thoughts on that? No, I mean, I... I don't know that it's always been true that they that they have lived up to this ideal of being, you know, uh, defenders of, of classical liberalism. Oh, but absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> yes, please. But... I, I'm, I'm putting it to you uh, to, to frame the question. I don't want to say that I endorse that they've always been like that, but please, right. sorry, go ahead. But no, you're totally right that, that they have embraced that mantle, at least like in their rhetoric. And I think that especially since the Bush era ended, um, really tried to, at least, and especially some, some wings of the Republican Party have really tried, um, you know, to, to hold, to live up to those ideals more. Um, and yeah, it's super depressing. I mean, I think that as a, I'm a libertarian and as a libertarian, you know, it used to be like, okay, um, at, you know, Republicans, I mean, my whole lifetime, I think of Republicans as being sort of into censorship, most of them. But at, at least, you know, Democrats were more willing to stand up for the First Amendment. And maybe this is a little bit different than what you said, but that's sort of uh, growing up. That was my sort of sense is that, uh, you know, they were more on that. They were, Democrats were better on that sort of side of classical liberalism. And but Republicans, at least, were better on another side of classical liberalism, which is, you know, yeah, letting people live and let live when it came to economic issues broadly defined. And so, you know, you had like the thing in uh, Texas, like where, or um, sorry, the thing with Colorado with the baker and saying, you know, you shouldn't, you know, have to bake a cake. That, that was like a big defining thing back in 2014, um, that we should, you know, protect people's conscience rights and not force private businesses to do these things. And it's just been really depressing because as Democrats have abandoned their prior commitment to sort of a civil liberties in one realm, Republicans have sort of abandoned their commitment to economic liberty and, and this sort of freedom at the same time. And it does really feel like, oh, sheesh, like I used to didn't think that I didn't fit with either one, but I could at least have allies in either party yeah, who were yeah, willing yeah. to, you know, um, be good on some issues and that you could trust to be consistent on those issues at least. And, and yeah, now it's just terrible. I mean, Republicans, when the issue affects them and they agree with the private business, they're like, yeah, the private business should be able to do whatever they want. And we shouldn't have the government force them. And then when they're mad about what the private business is doing, they're just like, well, nope, we actually should have the government force them to do it. So it's just, there's Seems, no principles there. Yeah, entirely cynical. And, you know, my yeah. feeling is, um, let's say, because I don't I don't really accept the premise that big tech, like, oh, they're out to get Republicans. I really don't think that's no. right. I'd be willing at most to accept a degree of, um, you know, the way I used to feel about the New York Times and, and their coverage that um, I, I don't know what I'd say about them today. But, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said, look, they're trying to call it straight. They're doing they really do want to be impartial. But they all come in with priors. We all have priors. And so the things that they're going to choose to cover, you know, is going to have a certain slant. And there's going to be a certain slant that's almost unavoidable because everybody, when everybody in the room agrees, you're going to have certain assumed premises and you're going to go in a certain direction. And I could see maybe uh, some of these big tech companies having a bit of that dynamic. And then the notion that yeah. from the outside, you, the government, are going to force different outcomes. First of all, you're not going to be able to do it because you're, you're still not in the room. 
And then secondly, you're actually likely to just drive people away from you. You know, nobody likes to be told what to do from on high. I think most people have sort of an anti-authoritarianism streak. So I think for Republicans, they have the much more, they, they won't acknowledge how big of a hill they have to climb, that they need to get back into the cultural conversation. They need to detoxify and actually, um, you know, not stop this game of like, oh, well, we'll start uh, right wing Twitter and it's going to be yeah. this cheap knockoff. Like, no, you know, we're going to have very smart people who are going to start a yeah. company who happen to have conservative leanings, but they're not going to make conservative Twitter. They're going to make the next Twitter. Right. Um, so I, th that's all just a long riff on on. It's depressing. It's really depressing because uh, there's no acknowledgement of that on their side that I see. So one of the weirdest things that Republicans have latched onto in their attempt to regulate online speech um, to sort of bring the conversation back down to earth is the notion that social media websites, um, you know, that they can be treated as like common carriers. At the federal level, um, Senator Roger Wicker has introduced a bill, the Pro-Speech Act that you've written about. Um, so what's going on there? Um, yes, this is the one that just came out a couple of weeks ago and it said it would, um, sort of compel almost like a net neutrality legislation for the internet, uh, saying that it'd be illegal for them to block any lawful content application service or device that doesn't interfere with functionality or pose a security risk. Um, this is something you've seen in a couple of different proposals too, from Republicans, which is this you know, like, well, fine, if people, you know, if people are going to ban conservative content, we're going to make it illegal for them to ban conservative content, or at least we're going to take away their, um, you know, liability shield under Section 230 if, if they ban any sort of content, which is just, again, is just nuts and just like not thinking through the issue because, okay, like, yes, they wouldn't be able to maybe but, you know, they could easily ban a lot of the stuff that people get mad about them banning still anyways, because if it was a violation of their terms of service, various things, they could still sort of justify it. But they also would sort of be barred from, you know, banning uh, obscenity or, you know, not not, not legal, like if not if it's actually illegal, but, you know, things that banning porn, which is elite, which is legal, you know, they'd have to allow all porn, they'd have to allow all sorts of violent content, they would just have to allow all sorts of things that conservatives would not be happy about if they had to allow on every single platform. I mean, you'd have no places that would be family friendly. You would also have no places where you could just have conservatives speaking, um, that would be illegal. Um, part of the Pro Speech Act also uh, talks about, you know, putting political affiliation among the sort of protected things that you, you know, you couldn't ban discriminate based on, which so, you know, you couldn't have a website or a web forum that was just for conservatives to talk on, even if you wanted to, because you couldn't, you know, if someone just came there and did nothing but spam about how great Joe Biden was, you'd have to allow that no matter how disruptive it was to the conversation. You'd have to allow spam constantly, you know, you wouldn't be able, spam is legal, so you'd have to have a policy that just let any spam bot talk all the time. So it, again, like it's, you know, in, in a different way than the Democrats are doing, but, but in a very real way still, it would make the user experience on these websites and these platforms very bad and not anything that anybody would be happy with, but in the name of, you know, teaching them a lesson for not doing what politicians want them to be doing. The 
sort of a, a shivel, sh- shibboleth, if I can pronounce that, um, for I don't know what I'm talking about in this area is anything that has a whiff of, well, just force the carriage of anything that's consistent with the First Amendment. Uh, and the, yeah, as you point out, the simplest example is just spam. You just make your your item unusable. I mean, and one one thing I will highlight about the Pro Speech Act, I am just amazed. It 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 would let websites opt out, in effect, of the law if they announce that they are a yeah. publisher. Which just so you're actually trying to legislate this really common misconception of what Section 230 means. This this misunderstanding that Section 230 does not actually contain some kind of platform versus publisher distinction. Uh, and I, I read that and I, I just sort of shook my head thinking that, okay, that's, that's where we've gotten. That's the level of um, sort of anything to stick it to big tech on, on that side. Yeah, because it's, it's just amazing because they've gotten, you know, that's become the conservative rally point. You're acting like a publisher, not a platform. And people keep rightfully pointing out, like, actually, that's not what this turns on. That is not a legal difference. So they're like, oh, yeah, well, we'll make it a legal difference. Yeah. <laughs> You know, certain if you repeat something often enough, uh, depressingly, it really can enter the discourse and and almost um, it's like a fake it till you make it effect almost. Um, Well, let me draw on a passage in in one of your recent articles, because I did want to get back to this concept of progress phobia. Um, You're writing here about Tim Wu, which uh, just for the record, Tim Wu's a nice guy. uh, But uh, but you're also writing about a more general attitude when you discuss, quote, the perennial panic playbook. Uh, we are forever in a precarious present, runs this line of thinking. You write, quote, always this close to wily corporations subverting democracy. We are forever in need of new policies, net neutrality, bans on vertical integration, stricter antitrust rules to thwart them. And when neither the policies nor the imminent danger materializes, a new threat appears on the horizon. Another big tech company is always rising and this time it's different, unquote. I mean, I just love that. Um, you do a great job in, in your article of discussing history, which is what this passage is about, about how these, these big threats, you know, they, they tend to be hugely overblown and are really just a reason for um, government exercise of, of power and sort of just general fear of, of change. Um, going back to the IBM and the Microsoft antitrust cases. So um, tell us about that. I mean, what can we learn from the past that shows us to maybe, you know, teaches us to maybe be a little calmer right now? You know, this is obviously a a tendency with technology and the internet. It's also part of a broader, broader thing, which is just that people think people like to think or are just sort of biased to think that they live in exceptional times. You know, I think we see this across all sorts of political realms, which is just people thinking like, okay, sure, things have, you know, worked out in the past when when blah, blah, blah has happened. But like this time, if we don't act now and do something drastic, it'll probably be different. And I, I don't know why, but it seems like it's just a huge tendency. Um, one of the things I really like about working at Reason is that I think that we're sort of anti- present exceptionalism in, in a lot of realms, you know, um, we tend to think like, actually it is not, there's not, things are not constantly getting worse. Things are actually pretty good if you, you know, look at them and and we should panic a little less about a lot of things, including this. But um, yeah, you know, with with the 
tech companies now, we're sort of repeating a playbook we've seen since the, since the start of, you know, internet companies or, or computer companies even. And, and this, yeah, it was sort of the thing with Microsoft in the 90s and early aughts when they were going after them about antitrust violations. Just people thinking like, oh, well, they are the dominant company right now. And we don't like what they're doing for whatever reason, or we're fearful of what they're doing for whatever reason. So like we need this whole huge set of rules in order to address that. And then by the time you, you know, finally pass those rules, or by the time you finally get through that court case that, you know, the, the antitrust court case for Microsoft took years and years. Um, and by the time it was settled, it was not an issue anymore. The things that they were trying to regulate, which was, um, you know, browsers, be, it was the start of the browser wars and, and, you know, internet browsers being packaged with computer, um, with Microsoft computers, it was just not even relevant anymore because new things were rising. And, and so I think that that's a lot of what we're seeing here too. You know, we have people trying to talk about all these, um, all these companies and all these social media platforms that are, that are currently very popular and how we're going to deal with them. And it's not going to matter because the history of the internet has been, you know, dynamism and seeing, you know, new things become popular. You have people saying all the time that, you know, well, Facebook has been around for this long, but, you know, Facebook is losing people, actually. Facebook has been getting, getting less and less popular. It's been, you know, shedding users, even as other ones have been growing. We've seen, you know, in the past year or so, the rise of TikTok becoming a huge phenomenon, the rise of Clubhouse becoming a phenomenon. So it's, you know, clear that these are not, Facebook and Twitter and them are not crowding out these old ones. Um, we've seen the rise of Substack being another good one. So it's just... You know, people, legislators are trying to make these rules based on a particular moment in technological time. And I think that's that's always been the case. And we've seen it fail again and again because things are going to change naturally. Yeah. So uh, very shorthand. I mean, I'm oversimplifying these cases, but IBM dominated mainframe computers and the government just prosecuted them until eventually personal computing over overtook IBM, regardless of the regulation, and Microsoft did. Oh, you know they were they were accused of tying uh, their Internet Explorer to their operating system, and meanwhile, mobile was around the corner and sort of disrupted that market. Uh, so the market sort of took care of it. Um, in closing, you know, so uh, kind of flipping in the other direction of should we calm down? Um, those worked out, but you know, how worried should we be that the government? Uh, if they actually do succeed in sort of ramming through uh, really draconian regulation, that they actually that they actually could tamp down that engine of innovation. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely is a concern. Some of these things that they want to pass ostensibly, you know, or they say to help increase competition and innovation, could actually really cement in place the sort of few major tech firms we have now and the various technologies we have now um, just by it making it harder for um, new firms to compete um, because either you know the regulations that a tech company is going to have to deal with under some of these laws they're so burdensome that uh, that a smaller startup would not be able to have the lawyers and the money and the time to actually be able to keep up with them um, or like you know one of the things one of the laws currently being considered antitrust pack in the big antitrust package in um, the house is that, you know, there'd effectively be a, a ban on existing tech companies acquiring new tech 
um, lines of business, new tech companies that were maybe, you know, in competition with something they wanted to do, which, you know, they say like, okay, we don't want, you know, Facebook to acquire Instagrams. It's to prevent that sort of thing. But a lot of these smaller startups, I mean, they, they exist to get acquired by big companies. And then that's what makes them become the next platform. And like, you know, then therefore they're able to compete with the other platforms that exist. And, and so that's how we were getting new things is with, with, you know, investment from bigger firms that already exist. And if we didn't have that, then it could actually, you know, prevent a lot of new startups. So I think, I think that it definitely is a big danger that if we have in place some of these new regulations, we would just actually end up helping Facebook and nobody wants to help Facebook. (laughs) Ah, a note to end on. Well, um, Elizabeth, this has been so much fun. Everyone check out her cover story at reason. Uh, it's, it's just so good. Um, so you, you've got, you're a BFD in that regard. Is there any other uh, future work you'd like to sh- share or highlight on uh, as we head out the door? Uh, no, just check out reason.com. Check me out on Twitter at Ian Brown. That's where I share all my new work. So, All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on once again. Um, I'm Corbin Barthol. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>